This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, Brent. Hey, Ernie. Hey, thanks for calling. I was reflecting on our conversation last week. And yeah. the anomaly I noticed was that I was feeling like I was worried that your amygdala was triggered. But I realized that's because I wasn't listening closely because my amygdala was triggered. And it's like, huh, okay, what's going on there? And I have a theory I wanted to bounce off of you what was going on with me. And it may tie into some other issues that you have brought up in the past. So the so you were talking about how this uh, school um, you had this controversy about LGBTQ inclusion, and they actually managed to have a reasonable discussion about it, right? Yeah. That was kind of the story you were going to. And, and I think the reason that I reacted is I thought this was going to be kind of a rant rather than a role model. And so I was sort of emotionally geared up that you were going to say that. And it's like, huh, okay, why was I um, – primed to think that way? What did I have been triggered by? And I realized there was a couple of things you had said that were kind of uh, trigger words for me. And I wanted to kind of dig through those. Um, the first is, I think, uh, you were commenting about some of these larger political issues and how you felt like you weren't allowed to speak or something like that. Does that ring a right. bell? Yeah, I, that was a corporate eye, but yeah. Right, yeah. The 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 and so that was the first one. And then the second thing was that when you were talking about this, like some of the things that are being done to kids, you were saying, like, this is just wrong or something like that, right? Does that ring a bell? Uh, I don't know, but right? that's, that doesn't matter if that's what you heard. That's right. how well, you got triggered. Well, first of all, I'm just, I want to try to at least understand what you think you may have said. Yeah. Well, so there's uh, what, right and wrong. There are things which are just not biblical, or something. I want to see if you remember what phrase you would use, or you would be comfortable using. Well, I would say there are things. There are things that simply aren't biblical that the culture is going towards, even the evangelical culture, and saying, "No, this is how it should be." And and the stories are being written by extra biblical. You know, there's no attempt to uh, uh, base uh, build out from a biblical model. Uh, some of the stuff that is going on, and uh, okay. what I was what I was talking about was the local non-Christian uh, uh, newspaper writer used the example of the people that wanted to establish an a pride club on campus, and the leadership and board of the university engaged in uh, fruitful yet disagreeing but civilly appropriate dialogue. And he was holding that up as an example of, see, we can still do this and we should strive to do this. And, and I thought were, that was- you were, you, you were agreeing with him on that as a- Oh yeah, I thought that was very right. nice. The Where I saw him only providing part of the story is he talked about the, um, the response of a number of churches and individuals who are gay affirming speaking out against the university and he they they put together a public a news gathering where they spoke out against the university and the problem that i have with that is that he made no mention of the fact 
but he wouldn't know that, that there was probably a larger response from the Christian community privately voicing support to the school. And I've, you know, I've talked to numerous pastors who did that, but that, and I was making the comment that, again, we see only one version of a story being presented and the average reader would think that there's a whole bunch of churches that are against the school for uh, operating according to the rules that it was granted by the, the government in 2015, which is 200 evangelical colleges and universities received an exemption in 2015 for uh, establishing clubs or organizations that go against what their biblical teaching is. And that's what Fresno Pacific went back to. So anyway, that and in the middle of that, um, I was aware that it felt like our connection was getting bulky. And all of a sudden, you broke through after I couldn't hear you saying, Brent, your amygdala is going. And I'm going, what? I don't understand. So that's so right. I'm glad you wanted to it, clarify that. Yeah, well, so I want to think through what's going on on my side first, and then you can decide whether or not uh, there's something there. I mean, the, the, the thing that, the reason I was wondering, so there's two things. The reason I was wondering if your amygdala was going was that we were having kind of a dialogue back and forth, and you went off a sort of an extended anecdote. And I wasn't clear on the whether you were talking to me or you were sort of pounding the table to make a point. So that was the wonder part. But then the reason I think that I concluded that the Tribunal was triggered is because I was expecting to hear something uh, and I was primed to hear something. And that's the part I want to sort of think through is, is what you actually said and what I and how I interpreted that. So I think I heard three things there which are kind of related. One is that there are certain things which are simply not biblical. Uh, secondly, that there's um, a, uh, you know, that often the way this is talked about really only tells one side of the story. And third, that you get the sense that there are certain things that if you tried to say them, you would explicitly get canceled for. Is that a fair summary of uh, what I heard you say? Yeah. Exactly, but I'm I'm not that worried about being canceled. I'm so cancelable already that uh, I'm surprised I've lasted this long. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so I think I understand what was going on in a way that gives me uh, uh, clarity. So I, I think one of the things that I've been talking about in this philosophy thread I've been having with Robbie and a few others, uh, including a friend from work who doesn't identify as Christian. It, the goal is to try to come up with a more sort of neutral language for talking about spiritual issues so we can uh, have more constructive dialogue rather than fighting over, you know, the terms before we even start discussing the issues. The, well, what is this idea of roles? Is that the world is incredibly complicated and we can't keep it all in our head at one time. So one of the ways we cope with that is we just take on a role. Okay, well, in this role, I'm going to focus on these issues and not worry about these other issues. And one of them, uh, which has been the most contentious that we've been trying to work through, is what I call the boss role, which you can also think of as the dad role. It's like, shut up and get your act together, this is what we're going to do. And this is what I have a lot of conflicted emotions about, both because I am a dad, 
and I have a dad, right? And I can see how this is like really necessary and really powerful and really useful and really heroic and also really annoying and obnoxious and <laughs> costly. Uh, are you with me still? Yeah. 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 Did the last word you said was toxic? Uh, maybe. Uh, I, I was trying to avoid saying that word, but I might have said it. Right? It's because that's a little stronger than I want to say, but certainly it can be used in toxic ways. I think it's a safe statement. Right. And even when it's not used in toxic ways, I think the word I was trying to go for was costly. Right? There is a, you certainly burn relational capital when you play this role, if that makes sense. Okay. Right? At least, I don't know if you're experienced with your kids. With my kids, I feel like, you know, if I'm in a good place with my kids, then I can play the dad card and they'll go along with it. But if I'm not in a good place and I play the dad card, I tend to get either rebellion or resentment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that there's a cost there. And I realize that one of the things that I've, um, I've often uh, appreciated is that as a person of color, I can get away with certain things that a white man cannot. Right? So if I stand up in a secular crowd and start talking about religion, most people are willing to give me the benefit of the doubt. Whereas if a white guy, uh, especially when I'm sort of representing sort of an evangelical uh, viewpoint, I can kind of get away with that in a way that a white man cannot. And that's just an yep. empirical observation. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing. And um, I also notice that when I'm in these settings and I find a white guy who's willing to stand up and share, I have a deep admiration and sympathy for them because I realize they have it much harder to inhabit that particular role. And I was thinking about my reaction, and I realized that um, I don't normally think of these terms, but I think it's actually useful for me to think of these terms, which is that when you said simply not biblical, that was a triggering statement for me. And I was thinking, why is that? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. One is the word simply, right? Uh, in that a lot of these things are not simple. And whenever someone says it's simple, I kind of feel like I've been uh, 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 told not, that there is no nuance. And again, I'm not saying that is what you were doing there, but that no. is uh, the reaction I was having, right? Yes. It's the whole reason to... Yeah, the word just is my, in my professional career in IT, the word just is my least favorite word in English language. Can you just add this one field or just file this one exception? And it's like, this always drives me bonkers because there's all this complexity that I worry about. Anyway, so there's a, but the second thing is the word biblical. Is that I realize that, you know, biblical can mean lots of things to lots of people. And in particular, I heard a wonderful talk uh, by somebody at Fuller about how, you know, in some ways, it's not really fair to call America a Christian nation because it was really conceived of more as a new Israel, that we are God's chosen people who are here to conquer the promised land for his name. And I don't know if that's true or an oversimplification, but certainly it was a useful lens for me to look at American history and say, okay, which of these things were specifically Christian and which of these things were really more uh, Israelite in the mentality and the thing. And like, there's a difference, you know, 
and mm-hmm. if you lump them together under this label biblical, I feel like, you know, that feels like, because, you know, biblical marriage, like, I think of Adam and Eve and clearly God's model, but then I think of Jacob and his two wives and Abraham and his two concubines. It's like, okay, well, I want to consider that biblical marriage. Um, maybe, maybe not. Is that something I want to defend? Uh, you know, the, 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 our friends in Utah would love to talk about biblical marriage in the context of polygamy at different stages in their evolution. Is like, is that what we're standing up for, or are we actually standing for something different? Mm-hmm. And so I realized that those words are conflicted for me, right? But then I think the thing that is really the thing that triggered me, um, I was talking about this with my father-in-law, because this is uh, different, but probably even more traumatic in, in Asian cultures, is that, uh, let me talk about what I learned when I was thinking to him, is that I grew up where the father figure uh, demanded uh, implicit instant obedience. Uh-huh. Like, I literally grew up on stories of, like, you know, the, the child who was on the railroad tracks and the father yelled at him to lie down, and the child didn't question, he just lay down, and he didn't get run over by the train. And it's like, you know, that was the model of parenthood and fatherhood. And so I was conditioned from an early age to not have any emotional defenses or psychological defenses against the father figure telling me what to do. And that was Uh a deep conditioning. And because of that, when I see my dad, like, making a statement, and this happens a lot on my podcast with them, uh, I feel this urge to say, wait a second, did you just say, like, well, he'll say, like, that's just not true. And I'll say that, like, and I'll be sharing, like, uh, like the, the context is I'll be saying, well, you know, there's different ways of reading this passage. You can read it this way. You can read it that way. Read it. He goes, well, that's not true. And I said, wait, what are you saying? Are you saying that it's not possible to read it different ways? Or are you just saying that you disagree with one of these things? And I think I've trained him to the point where he'll often say, well, my perspective is a little different. I see it this way. And then mm-hmm. I'll work with him on that. And, and that. Uh, psychological ability to negotiate that with my dad is something I'm still working on, uh, but it's hard fought, right? Is I really mm-hmm. have to overdo all this early conditioning because otherwise it feels like the, the amygdala, right? Either I deny his ability to speak into this or I allow him to travel my sense of identity. Those are the only two mm-hmm. options. And so that's where I get stuck in this amygdala place. Sure, and when sure. I realized that, I realized that, oh, now I understand cancel culture. Because these are people who, because of their, it's, it's precisely because they have this deep-seated um, uh, conditioning to respect the man that they feel this compulsion to reject the man. And they feel like the only way that they can feel safe is by silencing all these voices that remind them of the man, whether or not yeah. that's right. And also we realize, oh, this is why I can understand why people like you might feel very um, treated unjustly. Because like, wait a second, all these other people get to vocalize what they see as unjust and what they see as inappropriate. Why can't I do the same thing? And the interesting thing is, is that if it's someone, and what's funny for us, it's been flipping over the last 10, 20, 50 years, whatever, right, is that, you know, they see themselves as the marginal, the oppressed. We see themselves as holding the cultural centers of power. And so when they cancel us, we feel uh, like, you know, they are using their power and their privilege 
to silence our dissent and valid point of view. Yeah. Making sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, the word toxic, I don't think you used the word toxic. I couldn't hear it, uh, but I think a different word in there was, is costly because you yeah. referred it to it costing a lot a couple of minutes later. And so what yeah. I heard toxic was actually you were saying costly, which makes perfect sense. It is not something you undertake blithely or with, uh, w without much, with nonchalance. It is a conscious uh, effort to engage in this dialogue, in this retraining or clarifying, and yet you also have seen your father come to a point where he will give that. I mean, it would have probably been better for me to say, rather than simply not biblical, to say, you know, from the perspective that I am coming from and that I grew up with, my people tend to see some of this as not biblical. And therefore you go, well, okay, you know, I can, I can hear that. But when I make a blanket statement, one, one, I, there is a tendency for us to, if, to think that, or to, or to believe or to act as if we're talking within the same narrow confines of our tribe when we make these comments. But evangelical Christianity is splintering and fracturing and, we're discovering that, well, we weren't necessarily nearly as unified as we thought, and we're really, we're really struggling. So I have to be just as aware of my own talk uh, when talking to people as I do when I'm reading or hearing what other people are saying. And so, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that's really awesome that you, you made that statement. We we beat it around inside of ourselves for a while, thought about it, and then we get back and try and clarify it. So, I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah, and the other interesting thing for me, I realized, is that, uh, you know, as a dad, like, it's hard to summon the energy to get involved, right? It's easier to just do nothing. And so there is a certain kind of activation energy, like when I'm sitting here doing something and I hear the kids squabbling, do I get up and get involved, right? And... Mm -hmm. The very fact of that activation energy is often why I feel the need to sort of rouse my righteous indignation and put my foot down and have a sharp, clear statement is because that's what gets my emotions engaged enough to actually uh, give a damn what happens, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. so it, it, uh, perversely, the very energy that allows me to get engaged is what often makes me engage in a heavy-handed way. Yeah, yeah, well, but, uh, I, yeah. That's and... I, I'm in a bit different of a place and with kids that are mid and later 30s, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I'm more in the, the role probably of your father of uh, they will push back at me on certain things, and I have to go back and reevaluate, well, you know, where, where have I been, you know, uh, responding that way and everything. I mean, you know, the, the you know, my... Uh, I have a biracial granddaughter up in Menlo Park who's half black, half Vietnamese. And I make certain comments that I think are pretty harmless. And my son brings out the battle axe and slays me for not, for not being sensitive, you know, and I go, wow, I, you know, I, and, 
you know, sometimes I'm really hurt. I'm, I, you know, that, that hurt yeah. me a lot that you would assume that I would think that when I said that. But then I go back and, you know, I have to give him credit for wanting to be vigilant in how his daughter even experiences life on a moment by moment basis. And so he's naturally that way. Then I also have to ask forgiveness because in him, I keep hearing myself talking to my adult father as an adult. <laughs> and it's like, dang, he was listening that whole time, you know? And I tell him that. I say, you know, uh, it's, you know, I, I know you're critical of me and I accept that. And I really try and adjust to that. But I also grieve that, you know, you, you come and you say, I could have been softer on that. And I said, you know, it's not just you. I mean, I did the same to my dad and, and, and stuff, but, you know, we trying to navigate all this is you're right is incredibly complex and diverse. And and you and I both grew up in I believe in two parent yeah. families. You know, we had yeah. a mother and a father role and we, you know, we're trying to figure that out and yet we're also relating to people some of whom had effectively neither a father nor a mother and they had to figure yeah. out it's a completely different yeah. universe. Yeah, and we at least had some 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 cohesion of a, you know, reasonably functional relationship with parental figures who were most of the time reasonable people, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And that's a really rare occasion these days, it seems like. <laughs> well, and then the sad part for me is, a, you know, as a psycho, as a uh, used-to-be psychotherapist who's possibly still some, has some knowledge of the field, um, I, I look, I look with great disappointment over the fact that we are using very intense words to describe situations that are not necessarily reflective of those words. Like to say everything was abusive, or I'm a, I'm a, I was uh, victimized, or I was this, or I, this is toxic. We throw these words out, uh, you know, geez, well, what do you expect from a narcissist, you know, and that kind of stuff. And these words are now in our general vocabulary and they mean quite different things. And they're not, you know, and can we describe, it's like me saying it's simply not biblical. I mean, that's wrong to say that. I should say, you know, the, the kind of study that I've been doing and my, how I grew up and my, my church and my community, you know, uh, you know, uh, this is this is where I'm coming from. Well, you can't you can't accuse me of being the way that it sounded if I said simply not biblical. So you know, I mean, I take that to heart. That was really good. So yeah, it's interesting. The um, um, you know, there's so many. Uh, so a couple of things that came out of this. One was that um, uh. When I was talking about this with my father-in-law, the, the picture that came up was Peter and the sword and mm -hmm. how he was trying to defend Jesus. And mm -hmm. I think that, that was, that's one of the things that uh, I'm actually thinking that this might be the right passage to do for our next uh, DBJ instance, which is that, you know, like what, what the, the guards were doing to Jesus was clearly wrong, like arguably one of the most wrong things in the history of the universe. Right. Mm -hmm. They were violating Jewish law and all sorts of things to, you know, betray Jesus and sneak up on him at night. And Jesus called them on it. Right. And yeah. Jesus had warned Peter, like, hey, you know, I told you not to take anything, but now gird up your sword. Right. So like Peter's like, OK, this is it. This is the moment. And then Peter gets there 
and this happens, and Peter goes, okay, it's the moment. I'm ready. Here's the sword. Let me cut off this guy's ear. And Jesus says, whoa, no. And Peter's like, huh, what? But but you, the sword, the, it's like, Peter, this is not what's going on. And Peter was flabbergasted. And I realized, like, this is the thing that is so fascinating to me, is that, like, the way we got here is by being willing to being, having the courage and even the anger to stand up against what was wrong, right? Playing the role of the lion. And yet, this, yeah. and Jesus, like, the reason he got there, he was, you know, chewing out the Pharisees and, you know, doing miracles on the Sabbath and, like, Yeah. And like he, he like sits there like the land of the slaughter. And this I realized like this is a hard thing for those of us who are reformers who genuinely care about other people who want really effective to getting us here. Like if it wasn't for the man we wouldn't have, you know, the country, the civilization the systems, the institutions, something for people to rebel against, right? But mm-hmm. now there's this place where we have to make the slip to the lamb, and literally what happens is we do things that cut off people's ears, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, and like, oh, my God, this is the thing. And then I think there's a bit there about, uh, and I'm not sure how this connects yet, but about grieving. Like, we see these horribly wrong things. And in the old covenant, like, it was absolutely our job to be courageous and stand up and say, this is wrong. Let us go ahead and, and crush this evil or else, you know, everything will be lost. And like, that was absolutely the role that we had to fulfill back then, right? The, the, the sword. But then it's like Jesus is saying, but well, yes, but now things are different, right? Like the, the Gentiles had to load it over you. Otherwise that's how we got civilization. The people willing to, to stand up and be lions. But now he's calling us, to be lambs, and that is a whole different skill set, and it's really hard to switch between those two modes. Yeah. And I think that's the, and that, I guess to me, actually, that's the reason why I think this word biblical, I think I, w- I would like to retire it in favor of the word Christ-like. It's like, mm. it's like, okay, it's like, okay, I understand biblically this is wrong, and biblically we need to stand up for it. That's absolutely true. You know, not a jot or a letter or a tittle is going to fall away from the law, but what's the Christ-like response? And that's, I think, a harder thing. And it doesn't, you know, obviate the need to call out evil, because Christ did that. But it also really includes this, uh, this Christing, right, this thing of, of going from the lion to being the lamb and submitting and surrendering and saying, you know, hey, I'm actually so secure and part of something so much bigger that I can give you this victory that is so important to you um, that it's actually going to rebound to demonstrate that I am bigger than this issue we're fighting about. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, – that's what I've been trying to figure out a good word for it. Christing is probably the best word I can come up with so far. And it's like mm-hmm. this thing that Jesus does that is so paradoxical and counterintuitive and looks like surrender, but is actually a deeper form of conquest. Mm-hmm. All right. So thanks for the test talk this year. I got to go run off to another meeting. Um, of course. I feel like there's a there there. I want to try and pull it together around something. I'll see what uh, doors got opens. Okay. Take care, man. Yeah, and I'll, I'll probably I'll post both of these on the uh, the podcast so that anyone else who wants to can. 
chime in. Sure. So thank you. Yep. Bye.